0: I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at Patreon.com/wordsforgranted. Thanks to Matthew, Carrie, Amy, F.F., and Oren for their recent contributions. I've recorded an audio version of this month's blog article on the etymology of cockpit so if you become a contributor you'll gain access to this latest piece of content in addition to the back catalog of bonus episodes as well going forward i'll be recording all of the monthly articles as podcast episodes for patrons if you're wondering what blog articles i'm talking about Words for Granted launched a new and much improved website last month, so go to wordsforgranted.com to check it out, and while you're at it, you can follow the show on Twitter to get Etymology of the Day posts that I've been releasing a few times a week. And with that, on to today's episode, which, by the way, contains explicit language. Words for Granted is usually a squeaky-clean, family-friendly experience, but given the subject matter of this interview, Rather than prudishly spelling out swear words like S-H-I-T or F-U-C-K, we actually use the words themselves. So if you've ever secretly dreamed that I would use the words shit and fuck on this podcast, today is that day. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, everyone, welcome to today's interview episode of Words for Granted. Joining us is a guest that many of you probably already know and love, linguist and author of the new book, Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever, John McWhorter. John, thanks for being on the show. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you briefly catch everyone up to speed with what it is you do?
1: Well, um, I do a few things, but one of them is that I teach linguistics at Columbia University, and I've written some books about language for the general public, but to me, my real job is teaching linguistics to students and writing academic papers that nobody reads about linguistics, and my specialty within that is language change and language contact. I think on a lot of, like, the t-shirt version is that I study Creole languages, which I do But in real life, more broadly, I'm interested in just language diachrony and language contact all over the world. So that's roughly what I do.
0: Got it. So why, uh, given that background, uh, why a book about swearing?
1: You know, Ray, the answer to that is a little bit cynical, I hate to admit. I had a thought that there are four books about language that the general public really wants to read. One of them is about universal grammar. Steve Pinker already wrote that book. One of them is a book saying that language is going to the dogs. Lynn Truss already wrote that book 20 years ago. Gretchen McCullough just got to the one about language and the internet and whether the internet is changing language. There's only one left, and it was one on profanity. And there have been some, but I wanted to kind of get my licks in. And I thought it'll be a way to write a book that people will genuinely enjoy that will also allow me to get some stealth linguistics lessons across.
0: So that's what Nine Nasty Words is. I think that's totally fair. Um, You know, I think the linguistics of swearing is sort of in the air. There is that recent uh, Netflix show that came out, uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, maybe maybe we don't have to get on air uh, talking about it. But I was a little confused about who the audience of that exactly was. It wasn't particularly funny enough for a general audience, I think, and the uh, linguistic content of it wasn't rigorous enough for a language audience, but we can we, we, we can leave it at that. <laughs> so, so perhaps uh, let's dig into some of the topics explored in the book. So mm-hmm. swears have the guise of ordinary words like shoe, ham, or Harry, or whatever. But when we look at what's going on in our brains when we use swear words, it's actually something different than from what goes on in our brains when we say Shoe, hammer, Harry. So, what makes swear words different, and what's actually happening in our brains when we swear?
1: Well, what's interesting about swear words is that if you erupt with a curse, it's actually coming from the right side of the brain, the kind of id Dionysian side of the brain, as opposed to the left side, which is where most people generate just vanilla language. So if you're quietly putting a sentence together, that's left brain. Right brain is when you yell out F-U-C-K or something like that. And so really, it's something that started as a word, like in the case of F-U-C-K, it started as something referring to sexual intercourse. But when you yell it out, you're not saying sexual intercourse. It's not what you mean. It started as that word, but really it's just a yelp. And so that means that we think of these as words that for some reason you're not allowed to use. That's just the thing. They're not really words. They're language used to do something else. They're gestures.
0: Right. So this sort of gets at this point that I wanted to, to discuss, which is swears are not universal. And, and what I mean by that is like they're not the there's not an inherent particular set of sounds uh, that is profane. Different languages have different swears, and even within English, we see that the degree of profanity associated with certain words uh, shifts over time. So uh, the power of swearing comes from something else. Where, Where does this come from?
1: Well, basically, there's an urge to transgress. The idea is that part of being a human being is needing some sort of vehicle, not only linguistically, but in other ways to do what you're formally not supposed to do. And with English, the way that we do that changes with what we're hung up about. There was blasphemy. Then there was the body. So there's goddamn, and then there's, you know, fuck shit and ass and all of that. And the truth is that around the world, languages can differ as to whether they focus more on the religion or more on the body. Or there are other things that you can curse about. So it's often said that Japanese has no curse words. That's kind of true, although not completely true. But the reason is that the way you curse in Japanese is you mess with the difference between even in English, we could barely get it across. But if it were Spanish, between tu and usted, if it was French between tu and vous. except in Japanese, that sort of thing is much richer and more complicated. Playing with that is the way you transgress in Japanese and connote the same flavor that we do with, you know, get your fucking hands off of me or something like that. So that's, that's the idea. And today, of course, for us, what has become curse words is slurs, because we're more concerned with that, most of us, than God or what comes out of our body.
0: Right. So I think we can say that uh, the the power of swearing comes from culture and and perhaps more specifically taboos within the culture. And the specificity of the taboo may change, but the cultural presence of taboo is ever present, always has been, always will be. Is that right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. This is humanity.
0: Right. So it might surprise some people to learn that in the Middle Ages, words like fuck, shit, cock, and the other C word, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, were not actually obscene. Um, and that's because the things that these words represent were actually much more on display uh, literally than they are today. Um, I, I think it's in the 16th century when we start to have innovations around privacy, like private 15th. bedrooms.
1: F- right. Yeah. 15.
0: Excuse yeah. me. That's why I qualify different. I qualified yeah. that with I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that was good. Yeah,
1: it's a it's an interesting thing to read things written in English say before the 1500s and certainly so the 11 and the 1200s where you find that those things that we now consider profane they're considered salty they're they're, they're something that you snicker at but they're not profane they're not something you don't put down on paper people were much more honest about those things as you say partly because there was less privacy there was some privacy but more happened out in the open or practically out in the open in medieval life than we can imagine and so you have for example people walking around. Taking themselves seriously with names like Roger Fuck by the Naval and Henry Fuck Butter. And these things were actually on paper and not like in the caption to some supposedly humorous drawing where that's the name of some clown. These are ordinary people doing ordinary things, and you would have a street called Grope Cunt Lane. And once again, maybe people laughed a little bit, but the funny thing is there was more than one Grope Cunt Lane. This was just the way things went. And then starting in the 14 and then especially the 1500s you start seeing words like fuck go underground and next thing you know those words are treated as as sacred as actual sacred words such as how you treat god and jesus and hell
0: yeah i think for me the most uh and this is certainly uh, a a nerdy fascination but i find it fascinating Mm -hmm. that the clinical words for our genitals penis and vagina these are Mm -hmm. these are latin derived while mm-hmm. most of our other body parts are germanic and i've talked mm-hmm. about this on words for granted a lot um and this is because you know common words like body parts pronouns basic verbs etc these tend mm-hmm. to be germanic because english is fundamentally a germanic language basic vocabulary within a language tends to be conservative resisting change over time etc mm-hmm. um and i actually don't know what the old english words for penis and vagina were but when Pinto. these
1: pintle and then whatever their word for sheath was, which I forget, they were very neutral words. Anyway, go ahead.
0: Um, yeah. So when these Latinate words, uh, penis and vagina, came in to replace the native English terms, they were euphemisms, right? To sort of elevate them and make them less exactly. vulgar. Mm-hmm.
1: And so here we are with this weird situation where, say, penis and vagina are kind of clinical. You immediately think of a linoleum floor and, you know, too much light in the room. <laughs> but then the words like, you know, dick and, and the other ones are way low down and there's nothing really in between or you really have to think hard about it. That's an English thing. That's partly a Western post-Reformation thing that we don't have just good, honest words that nobody would laugh at for those. So there's arm or take, take hand. And somebody might say, get your mitts off of that person. Then someone might say, well, he had manual extremities Then we have hand. We don't have words like that for the, the down there parts. It's either gutter or clinical. And that's because of our hang up about those things. Mm.
0: Um, well, let's let's talk about the word swear itself, like why we use this term, where it comes from and how it relates to uh Damn and hell, which today are barely profane, but at mm-hmm. one point in the history of English, uh, damn and hell would have been in the league of fuck and exactly. and dare I say, cunt. Uh, so, yeah, tell, exactly. tell us about this, uh, where where swearing comes from and how it relates to damn and hell.
1: Yeah, why we call it swearing. You know, We're kind of used to the idea that there's this word that means curse, which is to swear. And you think vaguely you can say, I swear to God, but is that exactly cursing? What that is, is that at first the whole idea was the sincerity with which you swear to God. If you're going to swear to God, you're supposed to really mean it, but you're not supposed to take it lightly. If you swear to God or you swear to Jesus or you swear to anybody about something trivial and you don't really mean it, that was considered a sinful thing. So swearing was short for swearing in vain, which of course people did because people transgress. But the idea was that the way you transgress is to say, oh my God, too lightly. Hence, you have all sorts of euphemisms that we still use, barely thinking of them as connected to those things. Jeepers Creepers is Jesus Christ. G is Jesus. Then there are the funny old ones, like Zounds for by his wounds. All of those were ways of doing it without doing it, just like some people today say shoot for shit. So yeah, cursing starts out with that, which to most of us now seems so quaint. But in a time when writing was so rare, You know, we see Old English, for example, in writing, and so we think that's the language. For most people, Old English was something that was only spoken. There was no such thing as school, no such thing as media. You probably couldn't read. It was a language that most people just experienced as something in mouths and ears. If that's true, the way you sign something is to swear to it. It meant something to swear because there was no way for you to put your name to paper because frankly, usually there wasn't any paper. So that's why they took the swearing so seriously to us. It looks quaint, but that's why
0: cursing is called in what started as a kind of shorthand swearing. So this is like a, uh, you could call it like a performative act of signature. Exactly.
1: In- yeah. Yeah. Performative act of signature. That's good. <laughs> oh, thank you.
0: Um, you know, this also... Co- brings to mind that uh, the the etymology of profane also has a religious uh, lineage as well. Comes from uh, in Latin, pro means outside and uh, fanum means the temple and or, or, or place of worship or whatever. So mm-hmm. what was profane was. Things that were appropriate to do outside of church or outside your place of worship, but not so, in it. Right. But but yeah. but but not in it. So there is a connection between, uh, or specifically a religious connection between these words, profane, um, and, exactly. and, and and swearing. Uh, so in the book, you you mention how we use the word hell um, mm-hmm. as a as a scalar particle, and some listeners may not know what that is, and that's not really the point that I want to get at. The point I want to get at is. Profanities are often uh, grammaticalized in creative ways that defy sense or meaning. And the semantics of the way that we use a lot of swear words are ambiguous. And that's in because you point out, uh, swearing doesn't necessarily serve a strictly semantic purpose, but a pragmatic purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so break this down for us. What is the difference between uh, semantics and pragmatics? And what does this have to do with swearing? Well, pragmatics is a
1: very unfortunate name, it's a a sad label because for real people, pragmatic means practical. And what pragmatics refers to is that there are aspects of a language that aren't about what you're referring to, but how you feel about it, what sort of feeling you're trying to convey, what sort of attitude there is, and subtler things like that. And so for example, there is totally, if you say she's totally gonna call you, what that means is not she's going to call you completely, She's totally going to call you means you and I know that she is going to call you even if some people who are not us would be inclined to think not. She's totally going to call. We know they don't. You don't think about it, but that's what totally means. That's not about meaning. That larger implication about what may or may not be going on between the two of you, that's pragmatics. Even in the sense of I'd even play the maid in that play is also pragmatic in usage. And one way you know you're dealing with pragmatics is when you would have a hard time explaining to a foreigner what it meant. So we all know how to use even, you know, in that play I want to be in that play so badly I'd even play the maid. But imagine somebody asks you, "Excuse me, but you said, you said even? Even? What is this even?" I what what is it? And imagine how hard it would be. I don't know what accent that was, but how hard it would be to explain to that person what it meant. And whatever it meant, notice this. I want to be in that play so much that I'd even play the maid. That's sentence number one. Now, sentence number two. I want to be in that play so much, hell, I'd play the maid. Notice that the hell sentence means the exact same thing as the even sentence. That's because in both cases, you're saying I would play the lead, but I would play the second lead. I would play the comic relief. You know, it would go so far as me playing the maid. There are two ways of saying that. I'd even play the maid. And hell, I'd play the maid. And that means that hell, which starts out referring to this place that supposedly most of us are gonna go, now that has become a piece of grammar. That has become something that means the same thing as pasty little even. That's how, this is what I mean by the stealth linguistics. That's how language change happens, that something can go from meaning Hades to meaning this final one of a stepwise extreme kind of possibilities.
0: Right. And I mean, I think this is uh, the best example of this in the book is you uh, you provide this humorous to me, humorous hypothetical chart (laughs) of a future English where ass is an adjectival suffix. Uh, So (laughs) what is what is your thinking there?
1: (laughs) That actually could happen if people would just leave English alone. You say something like, oh, I'm going to get out a big ass pot. And it's going to be for spaghetti. And you think to yourself, that means that the pot is very large. But that's not what that usage of ass means. Because but the one I use, I think, in the book, and which is useful, is imagine you have an overnight guest. That person gets up earlier than you. And you walk into your kitchen. And they're looking out the kitchen window. And they say, hey, look, it's a gray-ass squirrel. Now, if they say that the squirrel is a gray-ass squirrel, first of all, it has nothing to do with how gray the squirrel is. The person doesn't mean that squirrel's really gray, which, if you think about it, wouldn't mean anything anyway, and yet it's a plausible sentence. If they said, oh, look, it's a gray-ass squirrel, you would know instantly this person comes from somewhere where squirrels are not usually gray. You would instantly know, Okay, this must be somebody who comes from where squirrels are white or something, because he's saying gray ass. And what he means is gray unexpectedly. And so big ass pot doesn't mean that the pot is very big. It means not just that medium sized pot, you might think, get something bigger than you're expecting, get a big ass pot that it's so subtle and it's not very that you can imagine a language going on into the future. And because it's subtle and you don't have conscious access to what it means, and it can be taken to mean just the adjective itself. You can have a language where this adjectival suffix was just there on any adjective. Many languages have an adjectival suffix and ours would be this ass. And an etymologist would say, well, you know, that goes back to what was originally buttocks. And people would say, well, who'd have thunk it? That's interesting ass or something like that. That could be the way it goes.
0: Right. And, you know, this is probably exactly the way that like became the adverbial suffix, uh, L- mm-hmm. L- y. Um mm-hmm. uh, That's the, what in
1: the world is it doing there? It starts out meaning
0: body, and now it's just this little lee just step by step by step. Right. Um, okay, this is sort of a non sequitur, but uh, do you have a preferred past tense of shit? <laughs> I um,
1: I really, for me, it's a gap it because take a shit to me is crude shat is a joke and shitted is wrong.
0: And so no. What whatever are you getting at? <laughs> <laughs> well, I well I was just thinking about this myself and I, I think I'm in the chat camp. I think I use shat seriously. I, I I do use uh the phrase take a shit and would n- certainly say took a shit or will take a shit mm-hmm. um but yeah, chat sh- that somehow seems legitimate to me. I, <laughs>
1: I always I, think of it as sort of a neologism, which it was about
0: 200 years
1: ago. It started as kind of a little trick. But yes, it, it has become accepted. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I think I just uh, selfishly, selfishly wanted John McWhorter's take on uh, the past <laughs> tense chat.
1: <laughs> it's really, it's, well, here's one for you. Sneaking. If you did it yesterday, what did you do? Uh, I snuck. You- not sneaked. No, I would say snuck. Okay, people vary on that. I like snuck too. Yeah. Okay. People who will swear about sneaked. So I just wondered where you fell on that one too.
0: Well, which which is the um,
1: more conservative of those two? Sneaked. It's sneaked. changing to it's changing to snuck. Yeah. Uh, okay. There are there are holdouts. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a snuck guy. <laughs> um, great. Well, maybe we can we can wrap up by uh, discussing slurs. Um, I, I want your take on this. Sociological phenomenon where, you know, you have uh, a denigrated or offended group uh, who's called a particular slur, and then they actually reclaim the slur as a way of referring to each other, Um, women calling each other bitch, um, gay men calling each other a certain F word, African Americans calling each other the N word, Quakers calling each other Quakers. Um, which no one really <laughs> finds offensive anymore. Um, but that did begin as an offensive slur, a derisive you know, term. oh I forgot about that. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, so why? Why, do, why might a denigrated group uh, appropriate that slur uh, when that slur is used against them?
1: Well, you know, part of becoming intimate is that you lower yourself. Intimacy requires that neither one of you thinks of yourself as higher and so that's why you know around the world and i'm making this up but i'm i would die on this hill around the world especially men becoming friends the ceremony will involve engaging in some sort of intoxicant or doing some sort of dance or something where both of you show that you're just ordinary people and so that happens in language too where there's going to be this impulse for people to call each other something that's slightly dismissive as a form of affection. Because what it means is, you're close to me. I'm, I'm comfortable with you. So around the world, there are things that men say to each other that are dismissive from the outside, but from the inside, it's OK. In Russian, a mujik is technically you know, some dirty peasant. Guys will call each other mujik, and that means you're my friend. So the same thing happened with the N-word. And the only question almost would have been why it hadn't. And what makes that complicated in the United States is, first of all, that because we all think language is in the dictionary, there's this idea that Black men are using the same word as some Southern racist 50 years ago, when you could argue that really they are different words that happen to have the same shape because they came from the single one word. Then in the United States, what gets majestically complicated is that of course, on race, you know, we're not there, but we've made some progress, enough that now there's been a generation of non-Black guys who have grown up feeling connected enough to Black culture, especially through hip-hop, that they want to use that word, too, to mean buddy to each other. And, of course, from the outside, that looks very racist. They feel like they're just saying buddy to each other, and they figure if you know, if you know, rappers can do it and black guys can do it, why can't we do it? Because there's a part of us that's black, too, because we like black people. And, you know, this is all very superficial progress, but there's something to it. And it makes that word really, really confusing.
0: Yeah. So so then what is what's the verdict if a group is using a slur to refer to other members of that group affectionately, uh, it does or does not grant outsiders of that group fair usage. What's, what's no. the verdict there?
1: No, there's, I think part of being an American of any sophistication is to understand it's different when black men are doing it. It doesn't mean that a white person can do it addressing a black person. Now, as I say in the book, it's very hard for me as a linguist and cultural commentator to straddle this because the linguist only describes. And so what I know is that I hear white guys using that word with one another, not knowing that I can hear and that there's a little (laughs) issue with that. And I think to myself, that happened and it's not my job to think you know, how I feel about it. The other part of me thinks, and to tell you the truth, I get it, I can imagine being that white guy saying that and really feeling like it meant buddy and he's lived the hip hop. I get him, I am not a kind of black person who's inclined to think that he's a racist, but boy, do they need to keep that quiet. That's something I would really rather they do in their own rec rooms (laughs) if there's still a such thing as that. You don't do that walking down the street. But as a linguist, what I know is that is done. And I just <laughs> leave it there.
0: Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, I, you know, I, have heard this myself and it just, it, it strikes me as uh, yeah, uh, somewhere between offensive and, and just odd, just, just <laughs> yes, odd. Exactly. Well, well, great. This has been a wonderful conversation. Great to have you, John. Um, before you go plug away, where can people find you uh, get in contact with you, et cetera?
1: Um, You can find um, Nine Nasty Words anywhere. You can find me at my email at Columbia. Or also, if you want a crankier, less palatable side of me, you can read my Substack newsletter, which I started doing a few months ago. But for the sunnier side of me, listen to my podcast, Lexicon Valley, where basically I do this. And there is also... um, There is what's what's the other thing? Oh, and I write for the Atlantic, usually on um, language or race issues. So there are a bunch of places that that I am. And Lexicon Valley is not ending in June. I'll announce for the first time here that Lexicon Valley is actually going to keep going. And so, yeah, listen in and we'll be talking about all sorts of things on that show.
0: All right. Well, fantastic. Thanks again, John. Thank you, Ray, for having me.